Writing in 1937, Dame Nina de said, What is the great general lesson to be learned alike by singer, actor or dancer of the repertory theatre in common with the state theatre performer? It is that the theatre proper, like the principles of Christianity, is a necessary part of the world's sanity. It may well be honoured and supported by the rich, and understood and lived on by the people, and their true bourgeoisie, which makes up the greater part of any country's population. We now present Dame Ninette de Valois and the Sadler's Wells Ballet, a feature by Norris Davidson, with Ninette de Valois, DBE, Margot Fontaine, Jill Gregory, Cyril Beaumont, and Richard Buckle. For tonight? Sorry, all seats sold for the ballet tonight, sir. Five minutes, please. Five minutes. Covent Garden, during the Sadler's Wells ballet season. Attention, please. All those concerned in the part of Cease Call, on stage now, please. Mr. Hart is waiting for you. Thank you. Backstage is the exciting atmosphere that never seems completely to attend a play, the atmosphere of something being created afresh. Some dancers are already on the stage. The head electrician the checks his lights. Opie. Beginners on stage now, please. Beginners on stage now, please. Thank you. Through the heavy curtains comes the sound of the orchestra tuning. More dancers enter through the wings. And on the stage, tonight's conductor, Anatole Fistulari, is waiting to be sent in. Thank you, Mr. Fistulari. Thank you. House lights, please. House lights, Maury. House lights. Behind every performance given by the Sadler's Wells Ballet Company in Covent Garden or anywhere else in the world, behind the Sadler's Wells Theatre Ballet, 
and the Sadlersville's Ballet School is its director, Dame Ninette Valois, who comes from Ireland and who believed that a ballet could be formed out of British dancers and that by persistence she could also make a ballet public. Herself a dancer and choreographer, she worked as no one has ever worked before to create a ballet theatre which can, I quote her opening words, be honoured and supported by the rich and understood and lived on by the people and that true bourgeoisie which makes up the greater part of any country's population. Her courage and confidence is now justified by this great organisation. Beside where Ninette de Valois once lived, now lies, beautiful, romantic and artificial as the Tchaikovsky Ballet, a swan lake in Ireland. Yes, I was born in Ireland, near Blessington in County Wicklow. Baltiboy's. Baltiboy's house, quite close to Blessington. Every day when I drive to Dublin, I see Baltiboy's house across the lake. Oh, do you? Well, of course, there was no lake there then. No. Just the Liffey running through the fields. I lived there until I was seven and a half, and then we went to England. I'm searching now for early signs and portents, so I must ask you if you went in those days to any of the dancing classes in Dublin. No, I didn't. Travelling then was very difficult. There was nothing but the old steam tram. I can remember travelling by it myself when I was a child. Nowadays, it's the bus. Less romantic, but much faster. Well, if you travel by the steam tram, you'll realise that two hours each way would have put regular dancing classes out of the question for a small child, if there had been any question of it. But I did travel by the tram to see my first pantomime in Dublin. It was at the Gaiety, and oddly enough, it was a sleeping beauty. Sleeping Beauty Ballet is one of the glories of the repertory of the Sadler's Wells Ballet. With the splendour of the court of Florestan XXIV, the wonderful Rosa Daggio, the blood-curdling fairy Carabos and our mice attendants, and the great transformation scene, it transcends any pantomime. Still probing for cause and effect, I asked Dame Ninette if this pantomime in Dublin had given her any interest in dancing. I don't think so, no. The only dancing which I did learn in Ireland was an Irish jig, and that was taught me by my father's herdsman's wife. <laughs> I learned it in the kitchen of the home farm, and that's the only bit of dancing I did when I was there. But I did execute it once at a children's party in Ireland, and I may add that I danced it at my own request. <laughs> well, that almost ranks as a first public appearance then. Now, in your book, invitation to the ballet. You say that you were tamed by an east wind and an English hockey field. When did that happen? If it did tame you, that is. Oh, as a child, when we were living in England at the seaside with my grandmother, we didn't go to school. Oh. We had a governess, but we were sent, to my horror, to the girls' school quite near us for games. 
And there I was tamed by an English hockey field. There was nothing I loathed more than organised games. Was it a rebel-making influence? No, it was a discipline. And rather a shock, because we'd been so used to not doing what we didn't want to do. When then we suddenly discovered that it was completely necessary that a small girl should play hockey, and I had to submit to this discipline. And had that no effect on the future? It had no effect on making me appreciate games, but it certainly taught me the necessity of discipline. The east wind of an English hockey field. It sounds bleak. It certainly was bleak. I found a lot of things that were bleak when I came over here. I noticed the loss of the complete freedom of life in Ireland. One of the biggest shocks I got when I came to England was to discover that I had to wear a hat. <laughs> they said if you didn't wear a hat, you got your hair wet. And as my hair had always been wet in Ireland, I couldn't see the point. Yes, I feel that this contact with discipline was also of importance to the future. High spirits and imagination might have been dissipated in Ireland. Now they were being given direction and purpose, just as a wandering stream confined by the retaining walls of mill race becomes a purposeful current. I return to the question of dancing. When did your dancing lessons begin? When I was about 10 years of age. When I was 10, we went to live in London, and then I did go to Mrs Wordsworth, a famous London amateur teacher. I studied there as an amateur, and I remained an amateur for four years. At about 13, it was decided that I should go on to a children's theatrical dancing academy for the theatre. It was called the Lila Field Academy. Was this decided by your parents? Oh, by my parents, yes. They decided I should do it. I was keen, but I don't think I was unduly keen, mm -hmm. although my interest was above the average, of course. I think if I'd been stopped altogether, I should have got over it quite easily. I think children do. I think a lot of these careers are started by the parents, and my mother was very eager that I should take it up. Was she? That's unusual, isn't it? Not with mothers. Oh. As I say, she was eager that I should do it. And my first London engagement was in the Lyceum pantomime. That was in the winter of 1914 to 15. What was that? It was Jack and the Beanstalk. Hmm. I returned to the Lyceum yearly until the season 1918 to 19. And in the spring and summer of 1919, I appeared in a musical show at the Strand Theatre and I was also premier danseuse for the international opera season at Covent Garden. And those were the golden days of Melba, Destin, Kirkbilan, and all those great people. It was a wonderful experience yes. for me. I danced at the opera again in 28, but in between then I saw the famous Diaglyph Russian Ballet, and I decided I'd like to join the company. I managed to get an audition and was taken on. That was in 1923. Yes, in 1923, I joined the famous Russian ballet. And for two important chapters about Diaghilev, I'm going to refer again to Dame Ninette Volva's book, Invitation to the Ballet. One chapter is about the man himself, and the next about life with this company. I've read this book, I suppose, six times. Once because I'm interested in ballet, a second time because I liked it so much, and four times after that for this broadcast feature. It's one of the great prophetic books. So much that is sketched out in it as a name has been realised. So many ideals and aspirations have found concrete form in the Sadler's Wells Ballet. 
It was written in 1937. It's a work of scholarship and perception, shrewdly observing and businesslike, philosophical, and expressing devotion to an art, along with an eye to what is humanly attainable. In the ballet, I've noticed that many, not all, but many of those who become great, and some who don't, are able to express with clarity the aesthetic of their art, as well as performing effectively on the stage. For example, I take Liffard, who was with Dame Ninette in the Diaghilev company, and I'm going to ask her to remind me of something in the book. Her observation on seeing the young Liffard in a rehearsal for Tricorne. Well, it was really Sokolova's observation, not mine. But we were watching this rehearsal of the Miller's Boys in Tricorne, and Sokolova said to me, Goodness me, look at them. Those kids from Kiev. They'll never do it. Never. It was her observation. Yes, but your comment in the book after that is... Oh, well, I think I said something like, let's peep under the sacks and try and recognise these worried, perspiring, red-faced small boys. Two of them proved to be Chekhas and Lifa. Lifa, yes. Scarcely more than a pupil, I suppose. And later he's mentioned as the little brown boy, as they called him when she partners him in the Chardas in Lac des Signes. But later, in Invitation to the Dance, she quotes from Le Manifeste du Chorégraphe, by the kid from Kiev, by the little brown boy, by Liffard, now grown up, a choreographer, the creator of Lorena, Prometheus, Icarus, Suite en Blanc, and many other works, some of them very unorthodox, like his views on music for dancing. And even if Ninette de Valois doesn't agree with him in everything, I think it supports my point that the great dancer knows the why, as well as the how of dancing. And in my opinion, the best contemporary example of this is Invitation to the Dance. Her chapter on Diaghilev is, I suppose, as good a portrait as one could find anywhere. Not a portrait, really, but an evocation of him through examples of his organising genius and his effect on the company. She says, significantly, writing in 1937, and dealing with the stories of favouritism and suppression, there are no Diaghilev stars alive today who ever exceeded the heights to which he brought them when he presented them as stars of a galaxy. The next chapter is on her life with the Diaghilev company, with Nijinska and Skola, Balanchine and Massine, and the great Cicchetti as teachers and choreographers with Nemtchinova, Idzikovsky, Wojcikovsky, and with Dolan and Danilova, and the child Markova. This chapter, in which she draws parallels between the Irish and the Russian character, is a narrative of tours, monstrous overwork, and a description of performances. A record of personal experiences and observations, but it's never merely gossipy and anecdotal, even when it deals with the tensions that hold a ballet company together although their existence may fission it internally while it remains the same to the outward view. Obviously, every class at this time, every performance, and every observation of the working out of policy went into the making of the Vic Wells Ballet and later the Sadler's Wells Ballet. And they all came from enchanted, exhausting, but rewarding years with the Diaghilev Company. Yes, it was a very hard life but I wouldn't have missed it for anything. And when I left them, my one ambition was to start up myself, to do something for the English dancers if possible. 
So I opened a private school and joined the staff of the old Vic, the Festival Theatre at Cambridge, yes. and of course, the Abbey Theatre Dublin. Yes. That was due to Mr. Yates coming over to the Festival Theatre at Cambridge and seeing a ballet of mine which was given with one of his own plays. Well, the Abbey is, of course, the National Theatre of Ireland, and I think the Old Vic, without having any official title, is the National Theatre of England. The Old Vic still appears to be our uncrowned National Theatre, just as it was in the middle of the 20s when I first joined the staff. Miss Lillian Bayliss was in charge of the Old Vic at that time, and at the beginning I only worked with her dramatic students and did all the dances for the plays. There was no ballet then. The first year Jean Forbes Robinson was in the company and I had in my class as dramatic students Elizabeth Allen and a girl who did so well in the films later, Heather Angel. My mm. best student was Esmond Knight. He could have been a first-class dancer. They were all students in the same year. Yes. You were giving them movement only? Oh, just movement. And, as I say, I arranged the dances for the plays. About the same time, I went to the Abbey Theatre, and that was, of course, very interesting and exciting. We did all the Yates plays for dancers. I danced a lot, and we opened a school there. I remember that school. Yes. Well, we worked there for about five years until they found it was too expensive to go on with it. Of course, it was a very small theatre, and the trouble was there was no possible employment for the dancers beyond the appearances they made in the Abbey, which were not very frequent. No. But, of course, it was still a time when ballet was not generally popular. I don't know that they would necessarily meet with the same results if they tried to start again now. No, I don't think so. Well, meanwhile, what was happening in the Old Vic? Oh, nothing really, as far as ballet was concerned. We were still waiting until Sadler's Wells was ready. The idea was to give plays and operas in both theatres. I did give small ballet performances with my own private pupils and a few professionals from outside during those four years at the Old Vic. Sometimes at Christmas, we gave a short ballet as a curtain racer to Hansel and Gretel, but nothing could be done until Sadler's Wells was opened in 31. And on the 5th of May, 1931, at the Old Vic, the Vic Wells Ballet gave its first performance. And the Times next day pronounced as follows. It has long been Miss Bayliss's intention to make the ballet, which leads a precarious existence upon the back of opera, an independent art at the Old Vic. And now that Sadler's Wells is in successful operation, she is able to devote a whole evening to a programme of varied ballets designed by Miss Ninette de Valois. 18th century ballets to music by Mozart and Bach were balanced by a new mime ballet, The Jackdaw and the Pigeons, a stylized fable in the modern manner to music by Hugh Bradford. A suite of Viennese waltzes, a Faust ballet, and a charming character dance, The Fawn, for half a dozen participants to music by Vaughan Williams with decor by Hedley Briggs, made up a satisfactory program which was executed in a far more businesslike and finished manner than the old Vic has ever before been able to apply to the dances incidental to opera. Mr. Valois' ability to make subsidiary movements, grouping and rhythmic patterns contribute to her large schemes enriches her ballets and gives to them a certain air of vitality, sometimes of gaiety, which is very attractive. 
Mr. Dolan was a visitor who received a very warm welcome from a full and enthusiastic house. Mr. Constant Lambert conducted the orchestra with his keen sense of the rhythm required by dance music. The enthusiasm shared by the audience and the obvious success of Miss Bayliss's experiment is a further sign of the growth of interest in ballet already provided by the Camargo Society and other establishments for its promotion. The old Vic promises to provide a permanent home for dancing, as it does already for drama and opera. Where does the Camargo Society come into the story? The Camargo Society was running then and had been running. It was running for everybody and anybody who was interested in ballet and ballet production and for dancers. And it was run very like the stage society, giving Sunday evening performances and a Monday matinee. And I and my pupils did a lot of work for them. They were responsible for a great many productions financially and also for presenting of them on the Sunday nights. At the Mercury? No, no, at the Cambridge Theatre. Oh, yes. And many of these productions have gradually found their way into our repertoire. We were, we were in a position to take them on, which we did. So the nucleus of many of the Camargo productions found their way to us at the beginning. And meanwhile, we were working up our own repertoire, gradually enlarging our activities and increasing the number of dancers we employed. So the real root of the present Sadler's Wells Ballet is the Old Vic? Yes, the real root is at the Old Vic. When we started, I closed down my private school, or rather transferred it to Sadler's Wells. In those days, of course, the Old Vic and Sadler's Wells ran as one. That's why we were called the Vic Wells. Because in the very beginning, we had to change over every month until they discovered it was uneconomical and it was easier to have the opera and the ballet in the bigger theatre and devote the old Vic only to the drama. That conclusion was arrived at after about two years of experiment. So by the time the war broke out, we were a complete unit of our own, about 40 dancers, functioning only at Sadler's Wells twice weekly, and, of course, dancing in the opera ballets as well. We also had a very big school. But those days of coming greatness were still ahead. The Vic Wells period was a time of struggle and change and of development. A development which is shown in two old programmes of mine. One is for a 1934 performance of Casnoisette. And last of all the snowflakes is Miss Peggy Hookham. The other programme is for a 1937 performance of Casnoisette. And Peggy Hookham is dancing the Sugar Plum Fairy. But her name is now... Margot Fontaine. But even before the 1934 performance, there were three pioneering years out of which one recalls so many names. Yes, and one of the earliest is that of a student who was with me in those far-off days and is now my ballet mistress, Jill Gregory. I first met Madame at the Abbey Theatre School of Dancing, where there were about a dozen of us, all told. The classes were held in a room at the top of the Peacock Theatre, and it was only when Madame came to Dublin to arrange and rehearse the annual public performances that we went on the Abbey stage. My first recollection of such an occasion was of being in the green room, which we used as a dressing room, having my face made up, all over blue. 
It was for a ballet called The Fawn. I liked my classes. I also very much enjoyed the occasional glimpses we had of the rehearsals on the Abbey stage. We used to creep down there whenever we got a chance. I never saw Mr. Yates, but I did once encounter Lady Gregory. She had a telegram meant for me, and I had one that was intended for her. We swapped, said thank you to each other, and from then on, well, I suppose we each knew that there was one other person in the theatre by the name of Gregory. For us, the students, the time went by in the routine of classes, enlivened each year by the arrival of Madame and the preparations for the show. And for this, we had to learn many new dances, and on one occasion, a small version of Les Sylphides. There was also an exciting time for myself and another student when we appeared with Miss Sally Allgood in Mr. Lennox Robinson's version of The Critic. We didn't dance. We didn't even speak until the moment when we left the stage. And then we had to shout back from the wings at the tops of our voices, Arrivederci! Then the school closed. When we knew that was going to happen, I had to decide either to give up dancing altogether or go to London to continue my training. Madame was anxious for me to continue, so I went to London. It was exciting to rehearse the first of the three-act ballets. It was Casnozette, and it was soon followed by the Lac des Cines and the Sleeping Beauty. It always astonishes me to think that what is now a coffee bar above the foyer of the Sadler's Wells Theatre was the room in which these big ballets were first taught to the company and rehearsed. It seems to me now, whenever I happen to see it, to be such a tiny room, but it obviously wasn't impossibly so. I remember it with more than a little nostalgia, perhaps, and despite its size, I shall always feel that it is considerably more than a tiny part of our lives. Another aspect of those days was that you had to create an audience as well as a ballet company. There'd been no regular public performance to hold a ballet audience together. Yes, that is so. Diaglip died in 29 and there had been a gap. We had to start creating audiences and we also had to persuade these audiences that we were going to be worth seeing. Of course, that took time. Yes. They'd no interest at all in us at the very beginning. They'd seen the very best. And they were hardly going to be interested in our very infantile efforts at the start. We had to wait. I should imagine that the audiences, even for the Agalev season, were nothing like as large as the ballet audience of today. Oh, no. The company wasn't able to have a season of more than six or eight weeks. And very often, for a part of that time, it wasn't full. People seemed to have forgotten that. He had the most extraordinary, wonderful reputation. But he did not have a popular following. There was no such thing for Bally in those days. He found life difficult. It was a very big struggle. But the audience created by this English ballet was suddenly to expand. Colonel de Basil's Russian ballet came from Monte Carlo to the Alhambra in 1933. When those who attended those seasons hear this music, they'll recall with me the symphonic ballets and Wojciechowski's sensational entrances. <laughs> Thank you. 
Basil started to work up a far bigger popular following. But of course we'd been doing a good deal of speed work. Building up an audience for yourselves and, as it turned out, for de Basil when his company arrived. Yes, building up an audience for de Basil to a certain extent, but they also built a further one for us as we improved. Was the press of very great assistance to you? Well, you've quoted the Times notice of our opening night and taken on the whole, the newspapers were extremely good. They always took our efforts at the Wells very seriously. We never failed to get a full press down for every performance, even in the very early days. But was it an instructed press? Oh yes, on the whole it was. Most of the press were familiar with the Diaglef Valley, very familiar with it, and we also had the music critics. One wouldn't say, perhaps, that they had the technical knowledge in those days of the ballet critic of today, but the music critic was the very best type of critic to have in those days, because he did put the whole before the part, he had musical knowledge, and he had memories of the Diaglef type of production, and so we had an attitude which was, I think, very helpful for the general standard of production, from the musical and spectacular point of view, and the relationship of choreography to the music. I think it was the best we could have had. It was far better than a completely 100% attention to the technique of the dancing. The Wells Ballet created its audience. It was also to create critics. But here is a critic who knew ballet long before the Wells began, Mr. Cyril Beaumont of the Sunday Times. And this was recorded in his shop in Charing Cross Road a shop in which one can buy any book of importance that's been published on the subject of dancing. What is Dame Ninette like? Dame Ninette is one of those indomitable women cast in the mould of a Florence Nightingale, who, having made up their mind what they wish to achieve, move relentlessly on their course until that aim is attained. Dame Ninette at once impresses you as a personality, with her grey hair dressed a la pompadour, tight-lipped and keen-eyed. She suggests a lady doctor or the headmistress of a women's university. She has a brisk, business-like manner, developed from long years of trying daily to cram 32 hours into 24. She has very definite views and opinions, which she is prepared to argue with a vigour which can verge on the aggressive, for she does not like opposition. She is very determined, almost ruthless in attaining her wishes a great administrator and organiser with an immense knowledge of the workings of a theatre and a firm disciplinarian, she is also a skilled diplomatist. I must further add that she is an admirable speaker and lecturer. No one can give a clearer exposition of some aspect of ballet. No one is better than she at replying to a speech. She has never spared herself in her work to build an English ballet, and though she is often afflicted with severe bouts of migraine, her courage and determination are such that she rarely allows illness to interfere with her work. But there are two sides to Dame Ninette's nature. As the director of three big organisations, she can be hard and unbending. As a friend, when she can put aside her responsibilities for a few moments, she can, strange as it may seem after my description of her, become a completely different person, the liveliest, wittiest and most charming of companions. Long may she flourish. On the 27th of December, 1935, the Vic Wells Ballet became permanently established in the Sadler's Wells Theatre.
the opening of the winter season was a great reunion of which the Times said, Their rendezvous seemed as a kind of choreographic overture in which the dancers could go through their paces and make their bows to their enthusiastic friends and patrons. Markova had gone, but all the spade work, all the pioneering, all the training given by Ninette de Valois and her associates now showed its value. A writer about ballet, Miss Manchester, in her book Vic Wells, A Ballet Progress, says... No longer was the Vic Wells dependent on a single personality. In future, it was to be the company we came to see, not one dancer. No one knew better than Mr. Valois that the loss of Markova was a tremendous blow to large numbers of the audience. Some of them drifted away altogether. But Mr. Valois was not a person to be disturbed by such an attitude. The Vic Wells Ballet, henceforth, would make its own stars. And the Times continues... The Rick's progress seen last season is going to prove one of the mainstays of the repertory, for it is a first-rate ballet in which Gavin Gordon's music, Rex Whistler's stage translation of Hogarth's engravings, and Ninette de Valois' choreography achieve an instantaneous unity. Its roots are wholly English, but its appeal has no national basis. Its artistic strength is such that it compels and obtains a high standard of execution from the dancers, Carnival, the international ballet which every ambitious company aspires to dance, has been redressed, restaged, and reorchestrated for Sadler's Wells. In it appeared two of the season's newcomers to the company, Pearl Argyle and Mr. Frederick Ashton, whom Mr. Valois has begged or borrowed from Madame Marie Rambert. What was the strength of the company then? About 30. By the time the war broke out, we had 30 to 36 dancers, about the size of the other company now in the Sadler's Wells organization. For music, we shared the opera orchestra at Sadler's Wells, except for the summer tour when we used to go out alone for six weeks at a time. The first tour we did was with Markover and Dolin before they formed their own company. They came as our guest artists. After that, we went out on our own and we did that in 37 and 38. There was a visit to Dublin, I remember. The Emperor's New Clothes was one of the productions and Constant Lambert conducted. Constant Lambert. No one with an interest in music, and particularly in music for the ballet, should ever forget the part played by Constant Lambert in the formation of British ballet. Yes, that visit is still remembered in Dublin. And these tours lasted right up to the outbreak of war, I think. Yes. In fact, we were on tour when the war broke out. We had been in Liverpool. We were on our way to Leeds. But by the time we got to Leeds, all the theatres had closed. When we got back to London in September 39, we were more or less disbanded for some weeks. The Sadler's Wells Theatre had become a rest centre. But at last we were sent out on tour with two pianos. We toured with two pianos for a considerable length of time. And then in May of 1940, we were sent by the British Council and the Foreign Office on a tour of 10 days to Holland. And we were caught on the Friday night when the Germans came in and we were cut off at The Hague. Hmm. We got out on the Sunday night on one of the very last boats to leave, but we left all our properties behind us. Was anything recovered? Nothing, really. Well, some of the music scores were but the most part of the stuff disappeared. So we had to start all over again 
and we continued to tour with two pianos for some time. Eventually, we settled down at the new theatre and took turn and turn with the Sadler's Wells Opera Company. We had eight weeks in London, eight weeks in the provinces, eight weeks back in London, and we managed to continue like that right up to the end of the war. Well, during the war, ballet was seen where it had never been seen before, thanks to you, and it was seen by people who, under ordinary circumstances, would never have visited a performance, I suppose. Yes. The war seemed to have hastened forward our final full development. We built up a vast audience, and not a little of our subsequent success in America was due to the amount of American servicemen that saw us during the war years. When the war was over, it was decided that Covent Garden would, be, would open all year round, and we had the honour of being the first permanent company in the theatre world of England to be attached to the Royal Opera House under the new system. A year later, they had an opera company, but at the beginning, they only had the ballet, and we were subsidised. There was no subsidy when we started at the Old Vic. We had certain grants, you know, yeah. and of course, people gave very generously, but there was no subsidy. When we went to Covent Garden, we got the subsidy, and the subsidy has been raised considerably since then. Of course, it was very hard going at the beginning because half our dancers were still in the forces. During the war, some of them danced for us when they came home on leave. They came back very gradually. And in comparison with today, we had a slightly smaller company. We opened with the Sleeping Beauty. In Ireland today, we have a ballet audience ready and waiting. A national ballet, even in its early days, would find support in Dublin and on tour in Belfast and Limerick and Cork and certainly in Waterford. I'd like to look back at the Abbey School for a moment. Did anyone among your pupils there have a success later on? Yes. My present ballet mistress was trained at the Abbey School. Jill oh, Gregory, yes. you've already heard her. She was trained there originally although her people came from Bristol, and she came on to us afterwards. She was about the only one. There was a boy, Tony Repetto. He was with us, and then he went to the Marco Bodolin Company. The others, I think they set up as teachers in Ireland. Those of them that went on with it at all. Of course, it was very small at that time. But now we have a ballet audience, and so I asked if an Irish ballet company should start in the operatic terms of the Dublin Grand Opera Society and the Wexford Festival by importing the principles at the start and supplying a corps de ballet. It's always wisest to start by importing all your principles. That is always the way to go about it. Yes. I mean, so many of the ballet clubs in England work like that. The Liverpool Ballet Club before the war used to work that way. 
They had a corps de ballet supplied by all the local schools, and we sent principals for the leading roles. If, as you say, you have the public, then I think Dublin should make an effort to do the same thing. That's how they'd arouse interest in the movement at the beginning. You can only do that way unless someone steps in and gives you a vast sum of money and you start your National School of Ballet inside your National Theatre, which will be, I suppose, the rebuilt Abbey Theatre, mm -hmm. the Abbey of the future. But failing that, if you want to start a ballet, you can start with the schools and you can engage guest artists and start modestly with programs where most of the heavy work falls on the guest artists. That's the ideal way of doing it. It would be good to have a small orchestra. I suppose the most you could manage would be about 25. If you can't do that, then have two pianos alone. Don't just have an odd instrument or two. Two pianos or a small orchestra. Would you say something about the training of a young dancer? They can really start any time between the age of 9 and 11. I've known them start later and be very successful. But I don't think it's wise to wait until after 12. Then, at the beginning, they don't want to do more than an hour a day, perhaps less for some children. It increases after a time, and the actual study goes on all their dancing lives. Sadlerswell's junior school, which includes general education, takes them up to 16, and at 16 they pass out into the senior school. Naturally, the ones who start younger are more advanced at 16. It's a short career, so you ought to be earning your living by 17. Well, in our case, of course, for many years, most of the dancers would be part-time dancers. Now, take the case of a girl or boy who has done early training for the ballet and then enters an office. Well, I imagine they'd be taking part in some sort of amateur ballet company by then, but they must work every day at class, or something like that, after the office work. It sounds a hard life, mm. but I assume they wouldn't be dancing in public very often. No. Uh, what do you think of Irish people physically, considered as dancers, I mean? Oh, I think they're very like the English. I'd say from what I saw when I was in Ireland that they're not quite as physically strong as they are here. The English dancer seems to me to be more trim, wiry, if you like, and stronger. Yes, I think they are stronger, undoubtedly. The main fault I found with Irish children was bad posture, weak backs. We had a very small choice of girls, of course, so we did have quite a lot of big girls. Now here, where you have an enormous choice, you just don't take big girls. But over there, where your choice was very small, you got a far more mixed type of dancer. The perfect ballerina height is about five foot four inches, and naturally she's got to be slim. Eight stone. Mm. Eight stone to eight stone six. Well, now, let me quote once again from Invitation to the Dance. In fact, this is a quotation of a quotation. It was an old ballet master of the 18th century who made the following remark about the artist. If he be not cosmopolitan, he cannot be true, and he is in no longer in the position to please. That quotation inspires me to ask you about nationalism in ballet. Well... In my opinion, you must have a national ballet, but you mustn't make it an end in itself. Yes. After all, if you are starting anything in a country where they haven't any ballet tradition of their own, you must start with the ordinary classical tradition. That's inevitable. 
and at the same time gradually introduce your national values. But you shouldn't do one thing at the exclusion of the other. If you're going to work in the theatre, you've got to have a classical tradition in the theatre. The whole effort inclines to remain not fully developed otherwise. A composer may go to his folklore for his music, but he scores it for professional orchestra in the end. It's exactly the same principle with the ballet. The only way to find out how to adapt national dances for the theatre is to know something about the tradition of ballet in the theatre and evolve one into the other. If you don't know anything about the tradition of ballet in the theatre, all you've got is a dance taken from the village green and put on the stage. And that's absurd. It loses half its value and most of its charm. Well, village green steps have gone to the making of present-day ballet. For instance, you told me that the Basque ballet... Exactly, the Basque ballet. The fundamental steps of the classical ballet all come from the folk dances of Europe. All our elementary steps are to be found in the Basque dances. And when they founded ballet traditionally in Paris, in the theatre, they did engage, I believe, 10 or 15 Basque dancers to come into the theatre, and they evolved the classical tradition from their steps. But what we've got to remember now is that it's been done, and there's no use in going back and doing it again. What we've got to do is to use the characterization of these dances when you come to ballets that aren't purely classical ballets. And so you give your ballet a national element, especially if you're using national folklore. We find all these dance steps, folk dance steps, in our present ballet, so there is no point in going back to discover them again. They've already contributed everything they can to the classical school. But the choreographers should have a great knowledge of these dances, because that is the only way they can enrich their choreography and give it a national stamp. These are words to be remembered by our own ballet company when it's formed. A company made up of the best dancers in the schools, joined together first, perhaps, in a ballet workshop, and later providing a corps de ballet for foreign principals. There's nothing to be ashamed of in importing principles, and this week the Cork Group has the services of Peter Darrell, the distinguished English dancer and choreographer. If Irish soloists are to emerge, they must have had the practical experience of dancing with professionals and profiting by their example. Then we will have a company performing ballet in the classical tradition and in the versions of recognized choreographers, and that established it can then produce works with a national stamp, just as the Wells can dance works as English as the Rake's Progress, whose choreographer was Dame Ninette de Valois. Indeed, the list of our ballets is formidable. It includes Job, the Rake's Progress, the Gods Go Begging, the Haunted Ballroom, Checkmate, Prospect Before Us, Orpheus and Eurydice, Promenade, Fête Polonaise, The Origin of Design, and many others. These have been danced in these islands and abroad, together with the classical ballets. And the admiration created by the Sadler's Wells Ballet is the result of profound technical and musical knowledge imposed on the skill, intelligence and enthusiasm of her dancers through her ballet masters and ballet mistresses by the creator of the Sadler's Wells Ballet. And when I say that, I mean the whole Sadler's Wells organization, and that includes the company to begin with? Yes, 
the company to begin with, then the theatre ballet, two opera ballet groups, and now the school. And that's not just a ballet, it's an empire. I've tried to convey something of Damninette's achievement over nearly 25 years, but for real instructed tributes to her genius and for the vivid portraits they give, I'd like you to listen to two voices. The first is that of the incomparable Margot Fontaine. I suppose the first ballet you ever saw was the Wedel's Ballet as a child. Yes, it was. Definitely before that time, I did not, as every little girl these days, yes. uh, knows what ballet and ballerinas are. Oh, yes. They know what a ballerina looks like, and they know yes. all about Sylphide and Swan Lake. And of course, at that time, uh, there were no other ballet companies no. dancing in England. And until I saw the Wells, I did not know what a ballet company or what a whole ballet meant. I'd only really heard of Anna Pavlova. Yes. Well, then, uh, quite soon after that, you, did you come in contact with uh, Dame Lynette? Yes, I first saw their performances, I suppose, about um, 1930 or 31, mm. and then I um, joined the, not joined the company, became a student. Yes in early in 1934, which was the first time that I met Dame Lynette. I had well, seen her before in the theater. Dancing, I I'd seen her dancing, yes. I'd seen several of her performances mm. in her own ballets, but I hadn't met her until I went to the Sadler's Wells Theater for an audition. Yes. Did you find her alarming then to a child of your age? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but not now. No, no, she's not, of course, yes. uh, really, she's not at all terrifying, but uh, she is a remarkable uh, disciplinarian in that she has this, fac this facility, this ability to control a large number of people to maintain absolute discipline. And, of course, when you're a very young student, you don't realize that she has a very human side. Yes. She perhaps hides it. <laughs> a great deal and as a matter of fact I think that I worked for her about for about 10 years before I had the least suspicion that she had uh, really a very deep affection for me I was quite surprised when I realized one day that she was very fond of me I'd always been quite uh, frightened of her and of course when one has a tremendous respect for somebody it also makes one rather shy and a little apart from them, and I have always had the most tremendous respect for Dame Ninette. Yes, there must be a sense of awe, really, which everybody seems to have uh, to a certain extent. You, you must know her uh, very much better than, uh, than most people, naturally. Yes, well, as, than, as teacher, than most people in, yes. the, in the company, because I've uh, worked for her now for so much longer than, than yes. most of them. What special qualities do you think Dame Lynette has that has led to this tremendous success? Oh, I think that she has a combination of qualities, uh, some remarkable in themselves and uh, some uh, perhaps rare in a woman, and 
the combination of these qualities makes her an absolutely unique woman. I should say the most important and the most outstanding are an immense integrity, a remarkable organizing ability, mm -hmm. principally uh, far-seeing. A great yes. deal of mm. her, of the work that she is doing now, one often can't see the reason for it and it is because it will bear a certain result in 10 years' time, which none of the rest of us would have thought of or cared of. Yes. I thought, I think that is one of her very remarkable qualities, is to, is to know what she wants to happen in 10 years' time, and much more difficult to know what to do now. Yes. So that that thing shall happen. I uh, think that she is, I said earlier that she was a remarkable disciplinarian, but one should qualify that by saying that she is the most, feminine and human personality and perhaps she has to hide that very often make even an effort to hide it mm -hmm. which gives a, a severe impression which is really quite misleading yes i would like to mention one last quality which is perhaps the most Im important in a lot of ways and that is her very remarkable sense of humor it, it's something that is in a way unexpected a lot of people who don't know her well get this impression of a very severe, yes. uh, serious woman, and uh, they would be quite surprised to find uh, how she will laugh like a child yes. about uh, something which they would perhaps think she The next voice is of someone whom the Sadler's Wells Ballet introduced to a new world. Mr. Richard Bucknell. It gives me a funny feeling to talk about someone who was one of my great heroines and who seems to me as important as though she'd lived in history long ago. And yet, in point of fact, she's someone I know quite well. I suppose my life would have been different if Ninette de Valois had not lived. And so also, I suppose hers would have been different if Diaghilev had not lived. It's so extraordinary to think of all those years in which I've been watching the Sadler's Wells Ballet and now it's world famous. Nina Tavawa has made Margot Fontaine into the greatest dancer in the world. The company has been to America. It's been acclaimed in Europe. It's known everywhere. And yet when I was a boy, all those people all over the world who now know about Nina Tavawa and her work would have been surprised at the name of Sadler's Wells. They would have said, who is Mr. Sadler and why has he got Wells? In May 1950, we celebrated at Sadler's Wells the 21st anniversary of Nina Tavawa's ballet, which had begun in such a small way. She danced that night in Ashton's wedding bouquet, in which I'd seen her the first night many years ago. And I thought when I watched her, it was probably the last time she'd dance on the stage. She was terribly funny as the maid in the wedding bouquet. She had such reticence and such charm and such wit. And I longed to get up in the theater and shout out, you're a wonderful dancer, you're a wonderful producer. We all love you, and we don't know how to tell you what we feel about you. And there they are again, the voices and the movement on the stage at Covent Garden. Thank you, Mr. Before Pistuary. the curtain rises Thank on another performance House by the Settlers' Wheels Ballet. House lights, Maury. House lights.
behind that are the rehearsals and the classes and all the organisation stretching back to 1931. Where there was one company, there are now four. Where it had the old Vic, it now has one of the world's opera houses. Where the seats were often sparsely filled, the houseful notices are up. Behind this change is the Board of Governors and Dame Ninette de Valois, the director. The director who joined the Diaghilev Ballet and learned how an English company might be run. Back behind that are her years of practical work, dancing in ballet, and before that, dancing in musical comedy, learning and noting. Before that, it was pantomime, and before that, the children's classes with Mrs. Wordsworth. Still looking back, there was the east wind and the English hockey field, which, I insist, began to impose an obedience to rule which first channeled energies that might have been lost and helped to bring them to this great success. Back, lastly, to County Wicklow and Blessington, and that Irish jig, learnt in the home farm and performed at a children's party at the artist's particular request, which was where our story began. A dance which we heard had no effect whatever on the future, or had it. The answer isn't important. What is important is that Dame Ninette established the Sadler's Wells Ballet and its future, and in so doing, made a path which can be followed by us here with full confidence of support for a national ballet, a national ballet theatre for Ireland. It may well be supported by the rich and understood and lived on by the people and their true bourgeoisie, which makes up the greater part of any country's population. Dame Ninette de Valois and the Sadler's Wells Ballet. In it, you heard Dame Ninette de Valois, Dame Margot Fontaine, Jill Gregory, Cyril Beaumont, and Richard Buckle. Jeanette Waddell read the quotation from Miss Manchester's Vic Wells, A Ballet Progress. By permission of the editor, ballet criticisms from the Times were included, and these were read by George Green. The feature was by Norris Davidson. <laughs>